everybody. Stephanie Ruper here. Thank you so much for tuning into the Naked Humanity podcast, where we take a deep dive into what it means to be human in the modern world. Today is episode number 47X, and I am addressing a listener question about postmodernism. Postmodernism, I think, is an extremely important concept to understand for today's world. We often hear it talked about in articles, say, in The Atlantic or Slate or The New York Times, postmodernism. Postmodernism is often associated with or talked about around Trump. There's been this big uh, sort of movement or upheaval in discourse of people saying, oh, postmodernism is to blame for the rise of fascism around the world, for the rise of uh, Trump and these sort of phenomena we see. Well, while there's some elements of truth to this that's not necessarily altogether accurate, uh, yes and no, it's complicated, but it's really important to wrap your heads around because it can help teach you about what today's world is like and why it is the way that it is. It is, it's important. Correct. So, I have a very quick listener question for you about postmodernism. Then I'll talk a little bit about what it actually is, uh, its definitions in philosophy, in art, in whatever, and uh, what you know why the world is, why we talk about it the way it is, and all that sort of really important stuff. If you ever wondered what actually is this thing, this POMO thing that people are talking about, uh, I hopefully will be able to elucidate all of that for you today. And if not, I really do hope that you send me questions about it because I would be more than happy. I am more than happy to answer them. So uh, my question today, hi, Stephanie, very quick question. Can you please tell me what the hell postmodernism is? Thanks, Brian. Okay. Uh, yes, I can, Brian. I can tell you what the hell postmodernism is. Postmodernism, the word was actually first used in the 1800s. Uh, people talked about it, a few, like three people, <laughs> four people, uh, between the years 1870 and 1930, a very small number of people used the word postmodern um, to refer to styles of painting, to refer to a, a critical approach to religion. Um, and then sometime, let's see, uh, I think it was 1926, uh, a man named Bernard Iddings Bell, he talked about postmodernism as a period following modernism. And this is the first time that we have the introduction of postmodernism as like an, uh, an era, an ideological era, an aesthetic era, something that characterizes the mood of our culture and our times. Uh, very interestingly, in uh, 1939, a man named Arnold Tongby referred to postmodernism as a reaction to the Great Wars, right? As a reaction to the First World War and the impending, the ongoing, the impending Second World War, which is something very, very much bearing in mind. You know, we often talk about philosophy, about ideas as being drivers of historical change, right? Descartes came up with this idea, Kant came up with this idea, and all of a sudden this stuff happened. Right. Uh, but it's really important to also understand that philosophers come up with the ideas that they do because they are products of their times. And so there are ways in which philosophers create history, and there are also ways in which history creates philosophers, which is a big part of the question of what postmodernism is, which I will get to in a moment. So postmodernism is basically a rejection of modernism. 
so then what is what is modernism at least philosophically understood modernism is associated with the ideals of the enlightenment most of us know what the enlightenment is the enlightenment was this period in the you know coming out of the 16th into the 17th and 18th centuries in europe where people moved away from the authority of the church and towards the authority of reason and they got really excited about this thing that we now call science but they weren't calling it science back then they were calling it natural philosophy and what they were trying to do was to find a way to make truth claims about the world and about morality without the authority of the church. They really wanted certain answers. They tried really, really hard to find them. And this took shape in multiple different ways throughout the ensuing couple hundred years. People take, uh, there were these two branches. There's a more rationalistic branch and a more empirical branch. The rationalistic is about driving logical arguments from your mind the empirical branch is about using your senses and as an extension the sciences to observe the world as it turns out uh, both of these branches are ultimately kind of impossible to prove in an ultimate sense philosophers tried really really hard to find ways to find ultimate truth and ultimately failed the biggest, most obvious failure was failure was in a movement called logical positivism, which happened around the turn of the 1900s. By this time, science had become a thing with the actual label of science, and scientific disciplines had been multiplying, and people were really psyched about the possibilities of using this kind of very rigorous, logical, observation-based approach to making truth claims. So logical positivism said it attempted to only make true statements. Unfortunately, this position was deemed self-defeating just a decade or two after the whole movement got going when we realized that sentences, sentences such as, this statement is false, exist. There is no way to get out of a reference system. This is actually really interesting. Quick aside, these sorts of movements were happening in philosophy when you realize that you cannot prove something is true from within its own system. At the same time that Einstein was developing theories that prove that all referential, all frames that in which we measure things are relative, right? These were the special and general theories of relativity. It is as true of the physical world as it is of the metaphysical, as it is of the philosophical world, uh, that we exist within certain systems and cannot, fundamentally cannot prove them without some sort of external whatever, which is kind of the function that God was, was performing all along throughout Western history, was this idea that um, uh, of an objective outsider saying what's good, saying what's beautiful, saying what's true, all of this sort of stuff. We don't have that, ultimately, now at least. And so philosophers sort of realized that these grand narratives that they were trying to tell, that they were trying to found a truth upon, were ultimately unstable. Now, at the same time, we're also realizing that the, uh, the empirical method is in itself influenced by our culture, right? In 1962, Thomas Kuhn published the famous uh, Structure of Scientific Revolutions and demonstrated to us that even though we perceive the current science as true, 
we still exist within a particular paradigm. And this was at a time in which social scientists were turning to science and saying, wait, 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 hang on a second. Science is as human as any other endeavor. There's nothing perfect about it. In fact, it's deeply flawed and we bring our own biases to it all the time. And then comes along Foucault, Michel Foucault, a very important philosopher in France who said, wait, look, knowledge is power. Now, we often say knowledge is power in a way that is meant to be inspiring. In fact, it's a tagline on one of my websites. Knowledge is power. We need to get more knowledge. Uh, but there is another deeper sense in which knowledge is power, which is to say that all of our knowledge is conditioned by our positionality. What we think and what we believe in comes from our perspective from our group and from our desire to be safe and comfortable in the world and in some way to have dominance over other groups, which is just to say to protect ourselves. And Foucault was brilliant at saying, look, power is inherent in our discourses. So pile this on top of the fact that we're realizing that our discourses aren't necessarily true, can be true, that science can't really make the grand unifying claims that it thinks it can because Ultimately, we're within paradigms, and ultimately, we're bringing our human lenses to the study of science. And you have a complete turn to distrust of these grand ideas, this project of the Enlightenment in general. In 1979, Jean-Francois Lyotard, <laughs> I butchered that, it's French, Lyotard, is, uh, published a book called The Postmodern Condition. And in this book, he described the postmodern condition as skeptical of meta-narratives. Now, a meta-narrative is an attempt to tell us some sort of grand unifying story, and it's an attempt to have capital T truth that applies to everybody or to certain groups. And postmodernism looks back at the Enlightenment project and says, whoa, 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 that stuff's impossible. And in fact, we're being kind of mean. You know, we're being the bad guys when we try to speak about what's true for other people. We need to look at local contexts. We need to look at people's own stories. So postmodernism is essentially a turn towards valuing local narratives, local truths, local methodologies, let people speak for themselves, and let's stop trying to like paint these grandiose pictures. Okay, so that's postmodernism, but there are many questions about it, such as, is postmodernism descriptive or prescriptive? And by that I mean, does it describe what's happening in culture, or does it tell you what you should be doing? It's a little bit of both, I think. There are some people who use it as a descriptive way, and we look at society at large, and you know, um, I'll never forget what Stephen Colbert once said. Um, now I'll never forget, now I'm trying to remember. Stephen Colbert, I remember watching this in my college dorm like 10 years ago, made a comment about moves, about a move from truth to truthy, to truthiness. And in today's world, we have truthiness and we have falsehoods, right? Instead of fake or incorrect um, or alternative facts. This is a truthiness. This is a world that doesn't necessarily have an objective measure, that doesn't try to adhere to an objective measure. It just has these competing truth claims that are legitimized based on what? Feeling, based on fabricated ideas, based on based on what, you know, your own perspective. 
so there's a way in which postmodernism is descriptive. And it says, look, this is how we ended up in the situation that we're in. This is how we ended up with politics uh, being so disingenuous. This is how we ended up with discourses that are full of uh, lies or half-truths or all this sort of stuff. And there's also a part of postmodernism that is prescriptive that says, look, we need to value local discourse. We need to pay attention to the marginalized. You know, Foucault came along and said, look, power is embedded in our discourses, also really helped shed light on the way that people who are marginalized, and for him, he was looking a lot at uh, people in considered criminals, people considered insane. And he was like, look at, look at how we're treating them. We are creating these categories, right? Uh, and not, we're liminalizing, marginalizing these people. We're not actually letting their truths speak for themselves. Very important, right? We need to question the ways in which we have talked about people and used claims of truth to be hurtful. That's a very real thing. Uh, and that's an important lesson that we should take away from postmodernism. My personal opinion is that we need to take that lesson but still hold on to meta narratives. The problem with postmodernism, one of the problems, is that even though it is critical of meta narratives, it is in itself a meta narrative, right? So there was a sense in which meta narratives can never actually be jettisoned. You can't actually get rid of these larger, more overarching stories that we're trying to tell about who we are and where we come from. And any attempt to do so, I think, is going to lead to chaos which is a part of our current political problem. You know, we're trying, we're trying to break our discourse into smaller discourses. We're trying to, say, engage identity politics. We're trying to elevate certain voices, and that's all well and good and very interesting. And we can have long discussions about that. I recommend episode 28 of this podcast with Amod Lele, who talks about identity politics and individualism. We're trying to do all of these things, which are all well and good, but... What we need to do is not jettison meta narratives. We need to use them responsibly. And maybe I'm just saying that because I'm somebody who writes books in a meta narratives type style, for sure. But they matter. Stories matter. Understanding history matters. Postmodernists tend to, and in the academy, they're everywhere. You know, and if you don't identify as a postmodernist in the humanities, you might and you might be in a lot of trouble. Unless you're in analytical philosophy, then you're okay. But to question postmodern projects in the humanities is a big, big no-no. And you can end up losing your job over it, you know? That's, that's a very real thing. Postmodernists in the academy ask people to stop saying, here's a grand history of France, but instead say, okay, I'm going to do a very tiny analysis of this one village for this one time period or this one human. You know, many or historians nowadays will look at one human and look at how their lives evolved and therefore it gives them a little bit more detail with which they can analyze how different forces and culture are influencing them and all that sort of stuff. So they ask you to do that and I think that that's all well and good. But in the end, I think humans, we need these larger stories. And does postmodernism disprove science? This is a huge question. Sam Harris is a very famous pop philosopher. Okay. He calls himself a philosopher, but also says that he hates philosophy. So that's confusing and a problem. But Sam Harris is very popular. And he says that the academy is a really big problem. Postmodernism is a really big problem because they deny truth. Yes and no. You know, many people in, who 
identify and work with in postmodernism don't, but they deny truth. They think morality is relative. They're a massive problem. They need to be stopped. I think Harris is correct that we need to continue to embrace science. We need to continue to work with empirical study. We need to continue to try to figure out what is good for humans and what is bad for humans and under which circumstances does this change and how does this vary by culture? We need to do that. Harris is right. But Harris is also wrong in thinking that everybody who embraces the critiques of postmodernism is totally against science. That's just not true. Basically, the postmodern critique of science is we need to be more sensitive, we need to be more careful. There are people on the extremes, but there are always people on the extremes. And one thing I have learned working in scholarship is that it is so easy to create straw men. It's so easy to say, there is a postmodernist, there is a progressive, there is an alt-right person, whatever, and shuttle them off into you know, a category that isn't worth considering, but that's so false. Humans have an inherent bias to see more nuance in their own views than that of others. But this is the fundamental problem that we need to fight. So don't say, oh, I agree with the postmodernists or I don't agree with the postmodernists. Learn from the movement, see what's positive, see what's negative, see how it's affecting the world, and then move forward without having to pick a side. You know, I think that that's really the productive thing to do. And I also think it's really important, like I mentioned, we have to understand this debate because it really, really shows the place that identity politics is playing in the world, pushing back against these discourses about power and uh, filling this void in terms of communities that haven't really had a voice before and the need to elevate them, but also at the same time, not jettisoning, you know, not jettisoning, not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. That's my perspective anyway, in terms of what to do about postmodernism. I'm going to leave it there for now. I could talk about postmodernism for ages. Please, please send me questions if you have any. You can get at me on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, of course. You can also submit a question to this podcast at stephanierupert.com slash form. And that link is also in my Instagram profile. And you can do that anonymously, which is why I created the form in the first place. So please submit me a question. These people are getting their questions answered, and I hope in a, a fulfilling way. Please also, if I've answered your question, let me know how it went for you, if it was helpful at all. Uh, one final thing before going, I do have a winner for this week's podcast drawing. His name is Nathan Smith. I follow him on Twitter. He's a smart, smart guy. He follows me on Twitter. It's fantastic. And dropped a quick review of the podcast. And now he gets a free book. I haven't actually even emailed him yet. I just picked him uh, earlier today. So I'm about to email him and ask him which book he wants. I'm really excited. I'm so excited to be able to share my favorite books with people who uh, do me the quick favor of writing a review of the podcast. So thank you all so much. If you want to get a free book, all you have to do is write a review, take a screenshot, email it to me at Stephanie at nakedhumanity.org. You can also get at me at that email address for any other reason. And please, of course, always be in touch. Okay, this has been episode number 47X of the Naked Humanity podcast, and I will talk to you next week.